Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but, you, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hannah. As a pastor, I have access to people's lives that most ordinary people don't. People give me access to their marital issues. They'll come to me with their addiction issues. They'll invite me in to times of grief and loss. There have been numerous times where I've been called to a hospital because a loved one is on the brink of death. There have been a few times where I've actually witnessed a loved one breathe their last breath. These are sacred times because in those moments when someone is about to move on, an eruption of emotion and words come out. I've heard spouses ask each other for forgiveness, for holding on to a grudge way too long. I've listened to sons and daughters share their favorite memories with their spouse, wanting them to know how thankful and grateful they are. And in those moments where I listen in, I can't help but feel a little uneasy. I feel like, whoa, this is some really personal, deep stuff, stuff that only family members should have access to. And I feel like I need to step out of the room in those moments. It's kind of like reading someone's diary. You feel Awkward. I don't know if I have been given privy to such intimate information. Well, that feeling of uneasiness that I find in the hospital room is, is what I feel when I read Jesus' prayers in Gethsemane. 
when you listen in to Jesus' prayers, you, you'll notice just how raw, how real, how emotional it is. And you kind of wonder, whoa, sh- should I be listening in? This is really private. Shouldn't this just be between Jesus and his Father? But evidently, God wants us to listen in. Because there's something about our Lord that we gain, something about our faith that we learn from his prayers in the garden. And so we have come upon one of the most sacred passages of all of Scripture. And so here's my humble attempt to unpack it for you. The first thing that strikes us about our passage is the intensity of Jesus' emotions. Verse 33 tells us that Jesus became greatly distressed and troubled. That word translated distressed literally means astonished, uh, amazed. Now, now the, the interpreters didn't use astonished and amazed here because those words often have positive connotations, right? We're astonished by something that wows us, that makes us lift up, lifted up. But that's not what's found here. I think a, a better translation is perhaps he's mortified. He's shocked. He's horrified by what he sees in the garden. Verse 34 further unpacks what he's feeling. Jesus tells his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He's explaining to his beloved disciples, I feel a grief so heavy, it feels like my chest is being crushed, that I could barely breathe. I feel like I'm going to die. And then in verse 35, we're told that Jesus falls to the ground. It's on his knees that he prays, and this is atypical. Because back then in Jesus' day, when you pray to God, you don't pray on your knees. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector? Jesus tells this parable And both of them praying. And how are they praying? They're praying standing. That's how you're supposed to pray. But here Jesus is doubled down, prostrate on the ground, because his knees are buckled with sorrow. And what especially startles us about this vivid scene is that this is not the Jesus we have come to know and love. Never before has he ever been afraid. He's been absolutely fearless throughout the Gospels. Nothing ever seems to shock him or surprise him. Remember when the garrison demoniac who was shackled in the, in the tombs unsuccessfully, who had a legion of demons inside him, ran out towards Jesus? I'm sure if, if you were there, you would see all the disciples looking scared, but Jesus doesn't even flinch. 
Remember when Jesus was in the middle of a sea where the storms and the winds were so crazy and wild, his seasoned disciples who grew up on the sea are scared for their lives. And what's Jesus doing? He's taking a nap. Over and over again, Jesus exhibits unflinching courage. He's never been scared until now. Our fearless Lord is trembling on the ground, begging his Father to change his fate if it's possible. And so we look at this Jesus and we don't know what to do with him. We don't know how to process this. By the way, this very scene in Gethsemane is evidence that the Gospels that we have are not some fabrication that the disciples made up. Because you see, back then, heroes and gods were never scared. When they looked at threats, when they faced death, they stared at it with steely resolve. And so if the disciples were to make up a story that would cause people to want to worship their God, they would not present a God who's trembling on the ground in fear. So the reason why we have this scene of a weak Jesus is because he was really weak. It's because this is history, not mythology. And so given the intensity of Jesus' emotions, we we need to ask, why? Why does he feel this way? Why is he so scared, mortified, horrified? What is it that's crushing his soul and buckling his knees? I've studied this passage, and I, I can think of four explanations, four factors that underpin his agony, his emotional distress. The first answer can be found in Jesus' prayer in verse 36. He prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He asks the Father, remove this cup. What does he mean by cup? Well, if you read the Old Testament, you'll quickly realize that the cup symbolizes in many places God's judgment upon the wicked. The cup in the Old Testament symbolizes God's judgment upon the wicked. You have passage after passage that identifies the cup of God with his wrath towards evil. Let me just read a few of these passages for you so that you can get a sense of the gravity and severity of this judgment. Ezekiel 23, 32 through 35. Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow 
a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, you yourself must bear the consequences of your lewdness and whoring. PG-13. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Now, I understand that for many people in our culture, associating God with wrath is really distasteful, if not offensive. Some of you right now might be thinking, this is the reason why I cannot believe in Christianity. It describes a God that is way too archaic and outdated. My God is a God of love. He would never punish people. He would never get mad at someone. But I want you to reconsider your assumptions. Wrath, hatred is not the opposite of love. Indifference is. In fact, there are occasions where true love begets hatred, begets wrath. If I truly love my daughter, then I'm going to hate someone who wants to harm her. I'm going to hate someone who is trying to threaten her. If I love humanity, I am going to hate instances of genocide, human trafficking, racism, it's going to boil my blood. The more loving a person I am, the more I won't be able to stand evil. And you and I can agree that there is a lot of evil in this world, is there not? Senseless actions, acts of brutality, barbarity. I don't know about you, but I want a God who loves us enough to do something about that evil. A God of wrath is not antithetical to a God of love. It's the very expression of true love. And there's no one more loving, more pure and holy than Jesus Hebrews 7.26 describes him as holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. His purity is precisely the reason why he is doubled over. 
His holiness is precisely the reason why he recoils in horror at the cup because when he stares down into this cup he is supposed to drink, he sees the very things he hates, the very things that are a contradiction to who he is and what he loves. When he stares into this cup, he sees envy, murder, lust, selfishness, sloth, greed, usury, abuse, so on and so forth. Every conceivable sin is found in that cup and it dawns on him in Gethsemane that this is what I will have to become. He who knew no sin became sin for us. In the cup he would asked, be asked to become what he is not. John Calvin says this in his commentary. His horror was not then at death as a passage out of the world, but because he had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God and the judge himself armed with inconceivable vengeance it was our sins, the burden of which he had assumed, that pressed him down with their enormous mass and tormented him grievously with fear and anguish. So that's explanation number one. Number two, it's not just the contents of the cup that doubles him over, but it's also the source of the cup. Notice how Jesus addresses God. In his prayer, he says, Abba, Father. Knowing that this cup comes from his Abba, Father, makes it all the more harder to swallow. You see, it's one thing to face the judgment and wrath of mankind. It's another to experience the wrath and judgment of your own Abba. For those of you who don't know, Abba means Papa or Daddy in Aramaic. It's a term of endearment, one where a little child would say to his or her father, you're my Daddy, you're my Papa. And by addressing God as Abba here, Jesus reminds us of the eternal affection that exists between God the Father and God the Son. That unlike earthly father-child relationships, which are often strained and marked by brokenness, his relationship with the Father was pure. Between God the Father and God the Son existed perfect affection, perfect harmony, perfect loyalty, understanding, and delight. The Father delighted in the Son, and the Son delighted in the Father. Every time Jesus looked up at his Father, he would see heaven. And every time the Father looked down at his Son, he would be filled with joy. 
Such was the relationship between the Father and the Son, and this union was uninterrupted, unwrinkled, unfettered, and undisturbed for all of eternity until now. For the first time in Jesus' eternal existence, when he looked at his Father, he would not find heaven, he would see hell. For the first time in his eternal existence, when Jesus was on the cross, he would not experience his Father's delight, but his Father's wrath, and that thought of seeing and experiencing his papa's wrath caused his inward soil to recoil in disgust. The sensitivity of Jesus reminds me of my daughter who when she was a little baby, it didn't take much to discipline her to tell her that she did something wrong. I didn't have to say or do anything. All I had to do was look at her and kind of frown, and she would burst into tears. This is why Jesus falls to the ground. This is why he asks for another way. It's because he loved his father so much. It would be his father's wrath. You see, no one loved Jesus more than the father. And yet at the cross, no one would hate him more than the father. And that thought was unbearable for Jesus. You see, it's so easy for us to be desensitized to the gospel is it not? We hear it so many times. The wages of sin is death. Because I sin, I deserve to die. Therefore, Jesus went to the cross to pay the punishment for my sin and die for me so that I might have eternal life. That's the gospel. We hear it so much that we can easily reduce the gospel to mere spiritual math, something that simply makes logical sense. But if you want to grasp the depth of the gospel, you need to understand that it occurs in the drama of relationship. That in order for you and I to be forgiven and redeemed, God the Father had to judge God the Son. That is deep. A father had to judge his only son. And that's why Jesus is doubled over. What agony must have filled their hearts that day. How hard it must have been for the father to say to the son, there is no other way. I believe the father suffered just like the Son, as unthinkable as it was for Jesus to experience the Father's wrath, so too it must have been for the Father to punish his Son. 
what a dark day Calvary was. And Jesus here is beginning to grasp what it means. Third, what adds to the deep burden of Jesus is that here in the garden, we have the crux, the climax, the pinnacle of Satan's temptations. You might be thinking, Jeff, Satan? He's not even mentioned in our passage. Yes, it's true, he's not mentioned, but he is so very there. Because when you zoom out and look at the Bible as a whole, there's this theme of garden that emerges. The very first garden we think of is the Garden of Eden. And there in the Garden of Eden, we find Adam. And who is he? Adam is a covenant representative. What it means is that riding on his shoulders is the fate of humanity. If Adam successfully obeys the covenant, if he does what God asks him to do, then he, along with all of his descendants, would inherit eternal life represented by the tree of life. But as our covenant representative, if Adam fails to obey, if he eats of the fruit of tree of knowledge, then he and all of his descendants plummet into the fall. And we all know how that story goes. Thousands upon thousands of years later, we find ourselves in yet another garden and we find another covenant representative. This time, we have the second Adam, Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul. And riding on his shoulders is the universal church, all those who would put their faith and trust in him. And so if this Adam the second one obeys, then we will inherit eternal life through him. But if he fails, then we're back to square one. And so though Satan is not explicitly described in this garden, you know he's there hustling, doing his best to get the second Adam to fall just like the first one. And so what we have here then is a cosmic final exam. What we have is a test of epic proportions where Satan is trying with all his might to get Jesus to stumble, to waver, to disobey the Lord. It's now or never. And this leads us to the fourth and final point. What adds to Jesus' agony in the garden is not only the contents of the cup, the source of the cup, or the, the pinnacle of Satan's temptations, but what adds to the emotional distress is the faithlessness and ineptitude of his beloved disciples. 
as much as our passage highlights Jesus' emotional struggle, it also simultaneously lowlights the disciples' lack of care and affection for Jesus. Jesus makes it so clear to them. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Guys, this is how I'm feeling, and this is what I need from you. Can you just keep me company and stay up with me while I pray? He's not asking for much. And yet, his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, all fall asleep, not just once, but not just twice, but three times. And what's telling is the response of the disciples when he wakes them up. In verse 40, Jesus says, and, or Mark says, And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Parents, have you ever, like, barged into one of your kids' rooms found them doing what they're not supposed to do, and they're like, oh, but, but mom, I, I, he made me do that, or the reason, I, I don't know what's happening, and they're coming up with all kinds of explanations and excuses to minimize the guilt of their sin. But then there's other times where you've asked them not to do something repeatedly, and on the last attempt, you catch them. They look at you, and they can't say anything. No explanation, no excuse. I'm guilty. I have nothing to say. That's the disciples. Jesus wakes them up. Really? And in their shame, they just look down in silence. But I love Jesus' response. In verse 41, he says, it is enough. The hour has come. I would not be surprised if Satan pointed at the disciples and leveraged the ineptitude, the carelessness, the apathy of the disciples as a way to tempt Jesus. You really want to drink the cup for these guys? You want to bear the wrath of your Abba Father for them? They could care less about you, Jesus. They're only interested in using you. They don't care about what they can do for you. They can't even stay awake for you in your time of need. These people are the ones you're going to give your life for? It doesn't make sense, Jesus. They are not worth it. But Jesus says, it is enough the hour has come. In other words, I've made up my mind. 
I will go to the cross. I will drink the cup to its dregs because I love my people. They are worth it to me. Dear friends, are we that much different from the disciples? How often do we fail to do what he asks of us? Not just once, twice, three times, 300 times. Please don't do that. How often do we ignore him, pretend he is not there, live our own lives? When we need him, of course, we're, we're praying and we come to him. But the moment Jesus says, I need you to do something for me, there's someone I want you to love. There's someone I want you to forgive. There's someone I want you to be kind to. We say, sorry, don't have time. On that final day, when we appear before God on Judgment Day, like the disciples, we too will have no words. As God reveals to us all that we have done in thought, word, and deed, in public and in private, we'll have no excuse. We're as guilty as charged. But this is why the gospel is so stunning. This is why Gethsemane is so precious. Though we might have no words on judgment day, Jesus, he will speak for us. Jesus, our advocate, will speak on our behalf. The word of God who was with God and is God, will be our testimony. 1 John chapter 2, 1 through 2 declares, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is going to intercede for us, Jesus the righteous, and says, Father, I know that they are guilty as charged, but know that I have drunk their cup, and I have given them my righteousness. They have been declared righteous before you on account of what I have done for them. Love them as you love me. Accept them as you accept me. I have conquered the grave for them. That is the gospel. Jesus prays in Gethsemane so that he might speak for us on our behalf on that final day. And so how should we respond to the Jesus of Gethsemane, to the one who stared at the cup, recoiled at what he found, saw the hand who's handing it to him, 
feels the, the heat of Satan's temptations, sees the foolishness of his people, and yet says, I will do it. I will drink the cup. How do we respond to him? I can think of two appropriate responses. One is worship. We need to worship Jesus. We need to fall on our knees, praise him, pledge our loyalty to him. Do you realize what he endured for you? And the second is serve him. Don't serve the selfish idols of this world who have done nothing for you. Serve the only true and living God who drank the cup for you. He alone deserves your loyalty and your affections. And so to this, God, may we worship and may we serve. Let's pray. Lord, we will never fathom the extent of the suffering you endured for us. To behold your trembling, to behold your fear, to see, O oh Lord, how hard it was for you to drink that cup. And you did that for us, unworthy, unworthy sinners. You did that for us. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We owe our lives to you. We ask, oh Lord, that you would help us to live for you and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.